9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and it is my pleasure uh, to be joined today by Kurt Anderson, who is the author of a new book, Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America, A Recent History. Hi, Kurt. Hello, David. Uh, I have to say, I, I set aside the day to, to read the book. I had started reading it a couple weeks ago, but I sat down this morning and I said I was going to read the book. And right now, I feel as though I need um, a Dramamine <laughs> um, because of, of several reasons. One, the, the book, which I think is brilliant and essential to the moment, um, largely, although it covers all of American history, takes us through a history of the past 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I are roughly the same age, so kind of roughly our adulthood, where we saw America go from a country, as you describe it, that had a real appreciation for what was new uh, to a country that started consuming itself uh, and did so um, as a consequence of... uh, initiatives by folks on the right and by folks who were just greedy that seemed to be working pretty well even now that we know what they were up to. Uh, and that, that is, that you know, to me, in some respects, that's the most troubling aspect of the book because I sort of get to the end of it and I think, oh, well, gee, Donald Trump is as bad as this could get, but if we move forward back to sort of the Democratic Party policies of Obama and Clinton, that's not the, the exit from, from, from all of this. Um, I, and it was also made me want to take Dramamine because hmm. for the past couple of years I've been thinking, I want to write a book like this, and, and now I can't because you did, and it's great. So well, it's, nice, it's nice of you to say that, David. And so often, I, I guarantee you, regularly as I was writing it over the last few years, and seeing, reading you in various places, including Twitter, I thought, well, I, thought I, I had some, uh, that you were, we, one of us was channeling the other. Uh, and and I, I felt as though we had some uh, uh, congruence of, of experience, of, of change of heart, of, 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 of red pilling, as they say ourselves, and waking up to what the hell was going on back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and I, you know, although I, I have to give you credit throughout that period because as a as writer and and doing what you did at Spy and doing what you've done at New York and in other places, uh, you commented on this stuff with some degree of acuity. I f- I feel you know like I got caught up in the middle of this thing. I was in the Clinton administration. We thought we were doing the right thing at the time, and I look back on it now, and I don't know what color the pill we took was. <laughs> But but we were just carrying this narrative forward. And the same people then went into the Obama administration, carried the narrative 
forward. Let me ask you a question. You've you've written this whole thing, uh, which presumably was, you know, mentally healthy for you and somewhat cathartic. When you got to the end of it, are you optimistic? Well, I'll tell you, optimism in in the binary, I don't subscribe to the binary of pessimism and optimism. I'm, I am kind of hardwired so far uh, in my life and in American history to be sort of 51% optimistic. Um, talk to me on November 4th, and I'll tell you if, where that's where that number has dropped to from 51% or, or raised. Um, I, I feel, unlike my last book, Fantasyland, which was about the sort of history of magical thinking and, 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 and Americans' weakness for entertaining falsehoods and delusions of various kinds, which isn't really fixable. It got that got out of control and was exploited by the right, among others. I don't think that's fixable. It's stoppable, it's slowable, maybe, but it's not fixable. This is fixable in a democracy. <laughs> this is fixable if we can enough of us can summon the will to to see clearly the kinds of things that need to be done and 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 re-re-engineer our political economy that was re-engineered 40, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Well, you know, you bring up a, a, an interesting question because one of the things you do very well in the, in the course of this book, as you talk about the re-engineering of it, is that you describe the re-engineering of it in several levels. You describe it at a political level, at economic theory level, at, at a legal level, at a campaign finance level even. Um, And if you look at the work that has been done from the Powell memo, which you mentioned, through to Citizens United, you see the system being changed in a way that it isn't actually a democracy as originally conceived. You know, the the, the Czech writers get to pick who gets to run. They get to pick, you know, they get to set the agenda. And every time somebody comes up and says, hey, let's change campaign finance, and I know you have some sympathies, as I do, towards Elizabeth Warren, it's like the third rail. It, it's no, you know, people talk about it a little bit, but nothing happens yeah. um, because that's where the money is. No, that's, that's true. And so, I mean, what, but, but uh, if I'm going to, there's no, we all might as well close up shop and stop talking if, if it's hopeless. So I, I don't believe it's, I, I, I have not given into hopelessness yet. Um, it, it, it has become that. And, and, and again, Clintonians and Democrats and liberals like both of us and so many people we know are not mainly responsible. But as I say, we, we were the useful idiots of this project of the economic right for, for the last, most of the last 50 years. And if enough of us, at least, can, can see what the problem is and see where we've gone and see that there's no way out, getting back even to Joe Biden's uh, nostalgic, oh, it was so much greater in the 70s. Well, in a lot of ways, it was. So, so forget going beyond 1976 when the United States had the maximum uh, economic equality probably in its history, but but... You know, I, I do think we could get there without, you know, far short of, 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 of radical changes. Now, the, the corruption of the political system and the, the olig- true oligarchy that has been created in the last few decades is a problem. Uh, it really is. And, and given the Supreme Court's 
given Citizens United and the uh, and the and the Supreme Court's general openness to uh, basically making campaign finance reform uh, of a significant kind impossible, unconstitutional. Well, yeah, and as we know, constitutional amendments are tough. But yeah, it's it's a tough game. But I I don't again I I don't think it's an impossible one. If 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 I, I you know I saw it again going back and seeing how this happened in the seventies and eighties, I thought wow. I didn't begin thinking. Well, let's see what they did, and we can do it in reverse. But one of the hopeful things I came away with looking at this history was that 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 it's it's if you if you if you keep your eye on the prize and, and, and are willing to play a long game and have a few billionaires uh, to support that long game, uh, you can do it. Uh, and that's, the, of course, part of the problem is that there are the George Soroses of the world, that is to say billionaires of the left. But, you know, the, the, they are not in it to make their own power and wealth greater. Whereas the people on the right, the billionaires, the politicized billionaires on the right, are, are there exactly for that purpose. Charles Koch may say, yes, I believe in libertarianism, and, and I guess he does. <laughs> but it also, it, by pushing his political uh, agenda, it, it has made him, you know, go, go from, a, from a small multi-billionaire to a massive uh, mega-billionaire. So, so th they have that going for them, the incentive of increasing their wealth and power Whereas, whereas billionaires on the left have to be, as it were, class traders in order to finance the kind of long game that the right so successfully uh, pursued in the Night Chronicle in this book. What do you think as you, as you look back, and you, the book goes back to um, the early history of the United States, and it talks about some of the aspirational aspects of the U.S., and you know, even even the, the the evolution of 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 sort of the the ideas of the role that industry plays and and so forth, which I thought was kind of interesting. The reference to Eli Whitney and so forth, but at some point, you know, the, the it, things go off the rails. Mm. And you talk about it sort of in the seventies. Some people might say Goldwater played a role in this. Some people might say the downfall of Nixon played a role in it. You know, there's 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 a narrative that 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 fits in your book, although it it it's not one that's central to it. Where, you know, Roger Ailes and a bunch of people go around in in, in at the time of Nixon and say, there's no right wing counterbalance to this left wing media. We've got to go and do that. And then they go and you know under 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 Reagan, you know Roy Cohn connects you know, Rupert Murdoch to Reagan and they get rid of the fairness doctrine and, you know, we, we end up with Fox News later on. So that's another thread of that. What do you see as kind of the origin story, the, the key turning point of this particular dark chapter? Well, I think, uh, as you know, I, I think that there was this hangover after the late 60s, which, and the late 60s, in every meaningful sense extended into the early 70s. But there was a kind of hangover and exhaustion uh, that uh, was one thing that gave room and opportunity to the, to the right, to the economic right, to pursue this project. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I do think also that, that there was 
because liberals, broadly construed, were in charge of the economy, the norms, the consensus about how the economy should run and fairness and the culture to boot and the news media since the New Deal, that, that, that there is, was a maybe cyclical exhaustion in, if, if we believe in historical cycles and, and a kind of complacency about like, well, this is the way it is. It's going to be this way forever and we have a good, uh, you know, aggressive antitrust policy and we have, okay, we'll lower tax rates a little bit. There's still a progressive tax code. All the rest, the whole, we have, we have minimum wage. We have all of the things that many of which, most of which came out of the New Deal of the 1930s and these aren't going to go away. And, and, and now we have Environmental Protection Agency and we have this government and everybody agrees and we may disagree at the margins. So there was a complacency along with this post-60s exhaustion that I think, I know, gave, gave the right, gave these evil geniuses um, uh, the, the, the opening to do this. Also, as I write about, in the, in the in ni- circa 1970, all the talk of socialist revolution in the air, um, they got a little hysterical and really thought there was going to be a socialist revolution maybe and that free enterprise would, would be out the door and, and they'd be expropriated and God knows what else. So they, they had that motivation as well. It wasn't just a, a cool, opportunistic time where they could take Milton Friedman and his nostrums and 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 rejigger uh, all the norms. They were also motivated by being scared, uh, and 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 uh, you know, and then uh, I, I so that that's that was the turning point to me. I mean, the late sixties uh, into the seventies was was the turning point that, for all of those reasons and more, allowed for this to happen. I think. You know, I, I come at this stuff from a, a sort of a foreign policy perspective right. more, more of the time. And so one of the things that I th- I was thinking about as I was, I was reading that was the place that, you know, socialism was failing in the 70s was Europe. It wasn't here. Um, and, you know, in particular, you know, the, the struggles the UK was going through that ultimately gave birth to Thatcher, who in part helped Reagan become Reagan was, was, was part of this. Now, you know, to me, it's, it's interesting as, as I look at that, because, you know, all of Europe was in this kind of socialist morass back then. And, um, you know, we went off with Anglo-American capitalism gone berserk. And here we are, you know, um, 50 years later, 40 years later, and, you know, I go to bed at night watching Scandinavian television shows because I feel more comfortable with their form of cap. You know, I, I, I imagine myself in the world of Borgen more than I do in, For sure. you know, in, 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 in this world. So it's, the, their trajectory took them from that kind of failure to something somewhat better. And, and certainly in Northern Europe, you know, did I, were the evil geniuses just, too evil or too much of geniuses for us to... I think they were too evil and too greedy. And the combination of, of again, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't posit that it's quite a conspiracy of seven guys in a dark room in lower Manhattan, but a lot closer to that than I ever imagined. <laughs> I, I'm, I am not a believer in conspiracy theories, which, in fact, I think led me 
not to sort of see the plain truth of there was some coordination here. And part of that coordination was, uh, in addition to the zealots, it was the rich, the billionaires, this, this, this whole group of billionaires, not just the Kochs, but several other important ones who financed this political project to change public sentiment, change the sentiment of this chattering class. All those things didn't exist in that way in, in the rest of the rich world. So, so and, and, and you look at, for, for whatever set of reasons it happened differently here, and we became an, an American exceptionalism yet again, took this horrible, <laughs> peculiar uh, turn and got this new meaning. As, the, as Europe, as socialist or social democratic Europe, uh, uh, sort of liberalized in the European sense and, and, and recommitted themselves to free markets, they, they didn't go crazy. They didn't. They they they, they understood, as as people have said about about the Nordic systems, for instance, that to to afford their socialism, they needed a thriving free market economy, and to have their thriving free market economies, they needed socialism, or social democracy. Let's not get hung up on what we call any of those systems. But whereas here, this here in the United States, this uh, kind of binary, simple-minded evolution of our anti-communist, our legitimate anti-communist fervor of the 1950s was reborn as this really dopey idea about, about the free markets, that the government, that as, as though they are creations of nature rather than creations of society and government and decades and centuries of, of negotiation and struggle. So we just, we, we did it stupidly and badly, not because we're stupid and bad necessarily, but because it was the project of this group of people and kept at it and, and, and went overboard. You know, I mean, why are they, why are our evil geniuses, uh, are they greedier? I don't know. Of course, it was also the United States. So during the 70s and 80s, we were still, you know, it was still a, Pax Americana, or or or, if, or choose your less charitable phrase, but we were still in charge of of the this you know the Anglo-American uh, end of history uh, free market democracy. So so the, who was going to stop us? Where, where were going to be the countervailing theories of 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 uh, where where our economy should go? So we just went we just went pedal the metal and never stopped, and and. You know, and that's one thing to say, but again, I was, I was surprised to do the research and see the United States compared to Western and especially Northern Europe and how the last 30 or 40 years in terms of all those trend lines of productivity and economic growth and median income, they are so different than us now. They are more different than, from us than they were then. They, yes, inequality has increased in almost all of those countries. By a percent, you know, it's by a little bit because they have reasonable governments and, and, and reasonable social contracts that mitigate against that. Again, it's not miraculous. It's not, well, it just worked there and it didn't happen here. It's by, as a result of hundreds of, of norms and, and, and government decisions and tax codes and regulations and all the rest that we are where we are and they aren't. One of the things I really like about the book is that it um, 
it, it looks a bit at the cultural roots of all of this. And you talk about, you know, I mean, people, people should buy the book and, and, and they should read it to find out to the degree to which you blame happy days for where we are mm-hmm. today. But, <laughs> but, but, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm overstating that, but just listening to you now. And the TV it, show, not the Brecht Club. Yeah, yeah, right. But I, I, I wonder to what extent, you know, we picked the wrong national myths because you know we have this, you know, it's the 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 the, the root of, you know, the America's image of itself is on the frontier, pursuing manifest destiny, you know. Uh, li- living or 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 die, you know, dying. Only the strong survive, you know. And 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 the 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 result is that you end up, and you talk about this in in the book too. You you end up with people in audiences cheering Gordon Gecko, saying, you know, greed is good, mm-hmm. and you know, and people listening to it, you know, liberals listening to it, and saying, hmm, well, you know, maybe there's. There's there's something to all of that, and you know it 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 lets us it lets us down. Um, whereas, particularly in those Scandinavian societies, particularly when you were able to crush the sort of bad mythology of of German influence mm-hmm. post war, mm-hmm. there is a sort of sense that we're all in this together. We have to survive together. It is it is much more of a communal orientation um and by the way it ends up with a better kind of capitalism i once you know i wrote a book once called power inc and i was looking at the rise of corporate power and one of the things that struck me was at at, during the 2008 2009 financial crisis for example we had a big there were two auto companies in the world that were going to go bankrupt one general motors the other saab Uh, in in the case of general motors we had to intervene because if it went under, a million people would be out of work. In the case of Saab, because there was a social safety net, they allowed it to fail. So which country is more capitalist? The one that allowed the market to do its thing or the one that had to intervene because the results would be too? Totally. too? No, and to that, to that point, I mean, I've, I've thought for a long time that, that an argument, an important argument in the American context for universal health care is, my God, we're all about labor flexibility. You can quit a job. You can start a business. All, all of those things are what, what works against that. Well, the, the crazy Rube Goldberg system that we have for healthcare, where it's attached to a job and, and, and where, well, how can I afford to start a business and pay for health care for all my employees? It's nuts. And, and so it's, that is, is, is a perfect case where, where it has been, you know, universal healthcare has been demonized as some socialist thing. Um, well, it would serve the vision of a robust capitalism in that sense to no end. Yeah, to 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 no end, and 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 I think another sort of subtext of this of the of this development was the early part of the 19th century, we started to recognize corporate rights as as being equivalent to, and in some cases, greater than human rights. And in fact, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which was written to guarantee equal protection under the law, has been used more in legal cases to defend and assert the rights of companies than of people. 
Um, and 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 I think that's another subtext of of this period in the book that corporate interests prevail over human interests. Am, am I reading that right? No, I think that's correct. Although, of course, in the end of the turn of the nineteenth to twentieth century is also when we America invented the idea of antitrust, the idea that corporations could be too big to have to be to have the kind of capitalism we wanted and and beyond that to have too much political power and the rest and of course ironically we invented it we finally in the late 20th century convinced all your socialist morass uh, european countries to say no go have this have this you know robust free market and here's our playbook there of course uh, the eu and and individual countries also take the antitrust idea very seriously, whether it's now against Google, but against against all kinds of companies. They 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 took us at our word that we were really we liked a truly free market and we needed government intervention to to build the guardrails and to make sure it was robust and and free. And and now we've abandoned it meantime. I mean, and even today, it's, it's, it was amazing to me when the, 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 the economies of, of the Nordic countries, Denmark and Sweden and Finland and so forth, are rated by the right-wing think tanks like, like uh, the Heritage Foundation as among the freest economies on earth. So this idea that, no, we can't do that socialist thing that Denmark does is is ridiculous and even and the 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 people of some good faith on the right will admit that even though none of the none of the politicians will right and if you look at the ratings they're rated higher in terms of fiscal responsibility as well and uh and in terms of the happiness of the people in the the society well well, Uh, and, and one of the things that happened i mean again you see these kind of obsessive almost fetishistic versions of 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 uh, political discourse and structure that came out of the the 80s, which, for instance, this idea that the Republican idea became low taxes, no taxes, no new taxes, no taxes. Well, of course, the Republicans had always been more, keep you know, balanced budgets, let's keep taxes low. But this kind of OCD version of no taxes are, we can't pay taxes, and certainly the wealthy cannot pay taxes, uh, 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 higher taxes. Um, it, 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 and which, of course, you can't do that. And, and, then, and the only way to ultimately to do that, as we've discovered in this country, is to run up more and more debt, um, which the Republicans uh, claim, still claim, <laughs> to be against, even though the, 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 they, they inevitably run up debt um, in order to pay for <laughs> um, lower taxes. And, and again, I, I was one of the things I, I was struck by so many things in my res- research to come across. I came across this thing, uh, this piece that uh, uh, Irving Kristol, the former socialist, original neoconservative, wrote back in, 19, in the 19, early 1970s in the Wall Street Journal saying, no, we have a new plan. It used to be, oh, you know, old fashioned traditional conservatives uh, want balanced budgets. Well, no, we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, it used to be that, that the, you know, let, let the liberals clean that up after we uh, rack up huge debt and make a mess because we're just not going to play by those rules anymore. So, so this, this idea that we're all familiar with now of, of the fake deficit hawkishness of the right, which is only, they only worry about budget deficits 
when Democrats are in power was part of the plan. And, and again, there are so many of these things, these memos, these pieces, that, that I was surprised to say, well, look, they were, they were admitting to us in advance what the plan was and what the strategy was. And I, I guess, you know, too many of us paid no attention. Yeah, I, I was struck by that incident, too, because it was one of those moments where as you go and read this, you think, oh, my God, we're trapped. The, the, you know, we are, they, there is this evil genius quality to this whole thing where, as has happened under Trump, under Bush, under the other Bush, under Reagan, they run up deficits, and then Clinton, Obama, and whomever comes next ends up having to clean up the mess and therefore can't get anything done, and therefore is not spreading around the goodies, and therefore doesn't get reelected, and then they come back and do their thing again. And and, and therefore continues to give typical average voters, white working class and other, no particular reason to vote for Democrats, because like, what? You're just, you're just, you want to keep balanced budgets, and you're not helping me out. And so, so yeah, no, it's, it's, we the, the, the liberals have been, the Democrats and the liberals have been played so badly uh, for so many years. Yeah, that, no, abso- absolutely right. And they don't end up fixing the infrastructure or fixing the healthcare system or fixing um, the social safety net uh, for, for unemployment. We end up where, where, where we are today. Well, let's, before we, before we wrap up, let's look, look a little bit uh, forward because you get to the end of the book and one of the things that you do is you talk about where we go from here and you talk a little bit about things like artificial intelligence and big tech companies. And I remember, I, you know, in the Clinton administration in the 90s, there were these tech companies coming up and there was the internet and we were like, this is a democratizing force and these are the new young voices of business and it's going to all be different. Now, you know, here we are 25 years later, they're all robber barons. They're sh- shitty people, you know, you, you, you wouldn't want to have dinner with, with, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack or any of these other characters who are out there. Um, and then you go and you, 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 you have this brief discussion about AI and where it could take us in terms of creating jobs or not. And talk about Larry Summers, you talk about Eric Brynjolfsson and, and, and there was kind of a checklist. And, you know, it was kind of like AI could lead us to a society where the wealthy get more and more power and there are fewer and fewer jobs and people are left further and further behind or not. And it could open up society and make it so people don't have to work as much and they're wealthier and so forth. Kind of, kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it, having read the whole book that comes before it, and I thought, we're screwed. I know this is going the other way. This is we're we're headed to the point where yeah. if you have the money to have the processing power and own the big data and anticipate who's buying what, uh, and data is actually the new form of gold of capital in our society, you're going to control the society as as John D. Rockefeller only dreamt possible. Um, so, am I like overly pessimistic, or no, do you have well, some you're, of that you're, too? You're, you're, I mean, I, on some days, I can be just as pessimistic because I really do think we are at this true inflection point where the inequality and economic insecurity and social economic immobility and all those things that we have unnecessarily made much, much worse in this country over the last forty years. Now, as 
jobs begin to disappear at an accelerated rate thanks to technology. And I believe it seems clear to me and everybody from those names you mentioned to, you know, Andrew Yang and everyone else believes that they will. I, I find it very persuasive. There are not going to be enough well-paying jobs to employ uh, all Americans and fewer and fewer Americans. So what do we do? I don't know exactly what we do, but I do know that if we don't fix our our norms, our political economy, our 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 understanding of shared wealth, the whole bit in a in a New Deal sized way, yeah, we're we're headed for a much worse time thanks to AI, thanks to there not being enough jobs. I mean, at least Mark Zuckerberg, as awful as he is in so many ways, at least he and others of his ilk out there do have said that they support the idea of something like universal basic income because they 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 they, they can be full of self-delusion and dissembling and all that. But in that instance, he and they understand that, wait, we we see what AI is doing. We see these extraordinary leaps that the technology is taking every week, every year. There aren't going to be enough jobs. The machines are going to do all the work. What then? So they, they, they at least get that, at least, or they give lip service to that, or they, they do get it, that, that the old, you know, industrial revolution thing that happened in 1800, and then again in 1900, and then 1950, where, oh, agriculture ends, but then everybody gets these other kinds of jobs. Oh, manufacturing ends, but then everybody gets these other kinds of jobs. No, it all, it, these previous industrial revolutions worked out. This time seems different. We are at a, a, we are in a new we entering a new industrial economic era where that's just not going to be the case. So what then? The wealth will still exist, but uh, how how do we as a society divide, divvy it up? That's the problem. And 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 so so if we ain't seen nothing yet, I mean, in terms of inequality and and uh, the left behinds and and all of the rest. Uh, it's just going to get worse unless we we make this paradigm shift along, let's say, uh, Elizabeth Warren-esque lines to, as the beginning. Well, I have to say, I did I did read the book, and 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 you're right, as you said at the beginning, we are kind of kindred spirits and all this. And I thought, what a great manifesto for the Elizabeth Warren presidency. But of course, then I came back to reality. Uh, the yeah. advantage that I that I was struck by with in the in the case of Elizabeth Warren was she was talking about transformational change and what what you look at when you look at this history is that when we went into the industrial revolution several big transformational ways of thinking about economics emerged some associated with capitalism you know, Marxism and and communism rose up in that period. In 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 this century, we had the New Deal, and then you had the sort of emergence of kind of sort of modern socialism at the same time as 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 all of this. And we've had this kind of uh, this this period that you describe so well in the book. The conclusion I got to at the end, I have the two sort of big conclusions. One is we need big transformational thinking now to deal with these new realities. And having read your book and seeing sort of how all the escape routes are blocked or many of them are blocked, I, 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 I admit I, I came towards the end wondering, 
I, I don't know if the United States is going to get to be the ones that, 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 that determines where all this goes. I, there are other economies that are growing faster. There are others that work better. You talk about that to some extent. And I just wonder if the next phase of world history ends up being transformational thinking from someplace else. It could be. I mean, um, you know, I, I have looked at uh, deep ancient history, and, and, and I wrote about this in Fantasyland. I was surprised when I was saying, okay, we see, I know the last few hundred years. Let me look farther back. The, the great Athenian age of the golden age of ancient Greece, that only lasted a couple hundred years. Which, and it was, it was magical thinking craziness before and after. So who's to say that we, this, we aren't at the end of our run? I'm willing, I entirely, I'm not running for anything, so I don't have to say the best is yet to come. Uh, now, I, I, I feel that we're not out of chances yet. But we, 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 we kind of, we're, we're, at, we're at the last chance. This is, I really do think some, you know, if not, well, certainly this fall, but beyond that, I think this decade is kind of the chance for the United States to either redeem itself in some fashion or become a giant, lumbering, pathetic Argentina of the 21st century. Well, that's the kind of cheery outlook that we <laughs> we, we hope we'd... We'd they're end away, up here. They're away, they're away. We can avoid it. We can avoid it. No, no, it. I, I look, and, I agree and the, with you. the young people give me hope. Well, I, I look, I agree with you, and, and they do to some extent to me um, as well. Um, but you're right. We are kind of at America's last chance. Uh, thank you very much for writing this book, which I think is a terrific book. And I very much hope that all of the folks who are out there who listen to this podcast will go and will buy this book and will read it and will think about it because it is about the issues you should be thinking about right now. And it places them in context and it analyzes them with real subtlety and wisdom and compassion also, I would add. And I think that's all important as we tackle these things. So um, thank you, Kurt, for joining us. Uh, and thanks to all of you out there for joining us. Uh, please come back again soon. And if you want to know more of what we're doing, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Uh, see our podcasts, uh, become a member. Um, uh, it'll help us do more uh, great conversations like this one. Thanks very much.